Our lesson for the day is Psalm 16, a miktam by David. Guard me, mighty one, for I have taken refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Of the holy ones who are in the land, these also are majestic ones. All my delight is in them. They multiply their sorrows who have contracted marriage with another God. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take up their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my allotment and my cup. You are the one who secures my lot. The measuring lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely an inheritance that is beautiful for me. I shall bless Yahweh who has given me counsel. Even in the nights, my conscience or my kidneys instruct me. I have set Yahweh before me continually. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Even my flesh shall dwell unafraid. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you give your covenant beloved to see destruction. You will make known to me the path of life. Fullness of joy is in your presence, and pleasures are in your right hand evermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you that you are our loving Father and you delight to pour out your good gifts upon your children. Thank you that you have promised to bless the reading and the preaching of your word, that we might be consecrated as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. May that be the case this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us faith to receive your word with humility and thanksgiving. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. What difference does resurrection make? Can my or your belief, or disbelief for that matter, in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth have any impact on your life or anyone else's? Does what happens to your body when you die make any practical difference before you die? Does the doctrine of resurrection matter for, quote, everyday life? Well, most Christians know that the answer to all of those questions is supposed to be yes. But sometimes I wonder if we truly understand the all-encompassing, world-transforming implications of Christ's resurrection and ours. The doctrine, the Christian doctrine of resurrection changes literally everything about the world and the extent to which you and I believe and understand that doctrine changes everything about us. To put it another way, our eschatology shapes our ethics. 
where you believe the world is headed and what you think is going to happen when it gets there shapes the way you live and the way you die. And this isn't limited just to your individual beliefs and your own individual life as if you could exist totally separated from everyone else. No, this happens, this, this shapes whole societies if a society as a whole believes a certain thing about the future of the physical creation or the lack of a future for, a phys- for the physical creation, that will necessarily determine the shape and trajectory of society as a whole. As we saw last week, Psalm 15 assumes resurrection. The psalm concludes with a promise of dwelling in God's sanctuary forever. And in order to do that, you're going to need a resurrected body. You're going to need a sanctuary not made by human hands. But Psalm 16, on the heels of that promise, Psalm 16, almost more than any other psalm, clearly teaches a theology of resurrection and why that's good news for God's people in this life and in the life to come. Psalm 16 gets quoted twice in the book of Acts as an explicit prophecy about the resurrection of Jesus. David is called a prophet in in Acts chapter 2. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, uh, which is what uh, we read from earlier, and Paul in his sermon in Acts 13, both explain that David wasn't talking just about himself. David was talking about his heir, the, the greater son of David, who will fulfill the promises of Psalm 16. Only through Christ's fulfillment of Psalm 16 does then the promise of Psalm 16 apply to all of God's people. After all, David's tomb in Jerusalem was proof that Psalm 16 had to be fulfilled not in David, but in Israel's true Messiah and King. It's this emphasis on resurrection that makes Psalm 16 a very common Scripture to hear read at a funeral. When I was reading it earlier, you may have had flashbacks like I did of being at a funeral and hearing that beautiful passage read. Now, don't get me wrong. Psalm 16 is an excellent Scripture lesson for a funeral. I highly recommend it if you're planning out uh, your, your funeral which I know you are. Um, But don't get me wrong. Psalm 16 is an an excellent passage for a funeral, but I think, and I'm going to argue today, I hope to show you today, that we need to immerse ourselves in Psalm 16 long before we ever reach room temperature. Psalm 16 is as much a song for life as it is a song for death. Some of you just caught that. Sorry. Psalm 16 is just as much a song for life 
as it is a song for death. Don't wait for your funeral to immerse yourself in Psalm 16 because you won't be able to appreciate it then anyway. Okay, Psalm 16 gives us a glimpse of resurrection glory. Psalm 16 shows us the path that leads to life and fullness of joy. Now, uh, there isn't a, a clearly discernible structure to this psalm, so I'm just going to take it. Uh, uh, I just broke it into five different sections, and and these main themes that I'm just going to work through uh, in sequence. In each of these sections, each of these themes are based on and fulfilled in God's promise of resurrection. Notice how the psalm begins. Verse 1. The psalm begins with an assertion of confidence in God's protection. Guard me, mighty one, for I have taken refuge in you. The first word of Psalm 16 is an imperative, it's a command. Guard me. But David isn't ordering God around in an arrogant or irreverent way, he's stating his request with complete confidence in God's love and in His protection. He acknowledges that it is He who is completely dependent upon God's protection. He calls God Mighty One. He affirms His complete trust in the Lord. For I have taken refuge in You. David is putting all his eggs in God's basket, so to speak. He's not hedging his bets in case God doesn't come through. He doesn't have a backup plan in case God lets him down. God is his hope. His only hope, for that matter. And it's in this hope that David finds freedom and blessing. Not fear and anxiety, but freedom and blessing. When we place our confidence in God's protection, we are then free to stop trying to control things that are beyond our ability to control. How much of your life, how much anxiety do you experience by trying to control things that are completely beyond your ability to do anything about I would venture to say it's a, it's a pretty significant percentage. How much less anxiety, how much less worry, how much less stress would you feel if you were to place your confidence completely in the Lord's protection and provision? This has far-reaching implications, not just for our own well-being and, and mental health, so to speak. Confidence, placing our confidence in God, taking refuge in the Lord and His protection, means that there is no need for us to exact vengeance on our enemies. Because we can trust God's judgment. We can leave room for God's wrath. When we take refuge in the Lord and in His protection, we can joyfully submit to God's wise providence and perhaps even get a good night's rest. David does, as we've seen, David talks a lot about sleeping peacefully, 
even in the midst of difficult situations because his confidence is completely in the Lord. I would venture to guess that one of the devil's most effective tactics is to get us so anxious with the things that are beyond our control that we neglect those things that are actually within our realm of responsibility. We have control over about this much uh, of life and of the world. But so often we neglect those few things where we are actually called to exert leadership and influence and stewardship because we're so focused on the 99.9% of life that we have no business worrying about. Since Jesus has defeated death, since all of this is in light of resurrection, since death has been conquered, since we don't have to fear the grave, what is there left to fear? When we put ourselves totally and completely in God's hands, we find rest from anxiety and worry. We, we find that we are as safe as we need to be. It's worth noting that verse 1 contains David's only request in the whole psalm. It's as if he starts off to, to rattle off his list uh, of requests to God, and he just gets carried away praising God. And it's like he forgets to mention all the other things that he needed God to do for him. And so in verses 2 and 3, he expounds on this foundational idea that the Lord is our only hope. He says, I said to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. To take refuge in God and to entrust ourselves completely into His care is to confess God as the giver of every good gift. There is nothing that God has not provided or promised us. And there is nothing that God gives us that is not in some sense good. Truly good. In a deep and often in searchable way, every gift that God gives us is good. We will only find contentment in life when we find contentment in the Lord. Nothing else will satisfy. As Augustine famously said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. But David knows that God gives us His gifts through many different means. It's not as if all He needs is God and, and it's just Him and Jesus and nothing else matters. No. Notice this seeming contradiction in verses 2 and 3. He says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. But these holy ones in the land... These also are majestic ones. All my delight is in them. So which is it? Is the Lord the source of every good gift? Is, is He the only one in whom we find anything good? Or is it that we delight? All of our delight is in God's people. Well, of course, it's both. God 
gives us His good gifts through many different means. And one of the primary ways that God blesses us, one of the primary ways that God pours out His benefits upon us is through His people. God will not, cannot be separated from His people. You cannot have Christ apart from His bride. You don't get the head without His body. You can't decapitate Jesus and just have a personal relationship with Jesus to the exclusion of the rest of His body. The people of God are the resurrection people. The church is the future of the world. It's in the community of the kingdom that we are formed as citizens of the kingdom. It's in the body of Christ that we encounter Jesus Himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us in his book Life Together not to take for granted the great blessing of face-to-face fellowship with other Christians. He says, Man was created in a body. The Son of God appeared on earth in the body. He was raised in the body. In the sacrament, the believer receives the Lord Christ in the body. And the resurrection of the dead will bring about the perfect fellowship of God's spiritual, physical creatures. The believer, therefore, lauds the Creator, the Redeemer, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the bodily presence of a brother. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian, get this, a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. The prisoner, the sick person, the Christian in exile sees in the companionship of a fellow Christian, a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. One of my favorite stories from church history that illustrates this point is the story of a deacon named Lawrence who was martyred in the year 258. Emperor Valerian had been targeting church leaders throughout the empire, but especially in Rome. He ordered the the persecution explicitly of church leaders. And so the bishop of Rome at that time, whose name was Sixtus, he was among those church leaders that were martyred. And Lawrence was a deacon who was sort of his right-hand man, the assistant uh, to the bishop. The prefect of Rome apparently was a very greedy man, and he saw in Lawrence an opportunity to get his hands on the treasures of the church. Because as Sixtus was being led away to his uh, martyrdom, apparently he gave instructions to Lawrence about what to do with the church's treasures. And so he told the prefect of Rome tells Lawrence, go and gather for me all the treasures of the church. And Lawrence says, okay, well, I'm going to need a couple days to do this. He says, all right, you've got three days. On this day, you meet me back. You know, you gather all the treasure and you have it in, you know, wherever it was. And so promptly for the next three days, Lawrence goes and gets all the gold, all the silver, whatever the church has, 
And he goes and he gives it away to all the poor people. And then, on the third day, he gathers all the sick, all the poor, all the widows, all the people he can find, and he brings them into the church where he's supposed to present the treasure of the church to the prefect. And this is how, uh, this is how the interaction is recorded for us in the, in the tradition. Then, Valiant Lawrence, stretching his arms out over the poor, said, These are the precious treasure of the church. These are the treasure indeed in whom the faith of Christ reigns, in whom Jesus Christ has His mansion place. What more precious jewels can Christ have than those in whom He has promised to dwell? For so it is written, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was homeless and you lodged me. And again, Christ says, look, what you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. What greater riches can Christ our Master possess than the poor people in whom He loves to be seen? Lawrence understood the biblical truth that the treasures of God are His people. The church is Christ's inheritance. He suffered unthinkable agony so that He could have us. Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? The church is a mess, isn't it? We're a wreck. Look at us. We're not that impressive. What's so special about us? God's saints often don't look very majestic. God's people often don't look very noble. The church is very often an unimpressive bunch. A ragtag group running around doing all sorts of foolishness, right? But Jesus sees the church for what she will be when He gets finished with her. That is the way we are called to see each other. When we see each other with eyes of faith, when we see each other through the lens of resurrection glory, then we're able to confess with David, these are majestic ones. All my delight is in them. The next section of the psalm goes on to develop this idea of delighting in God and in His people by contrasting the folly of idolatry with the great blessing of contentment in God's provision. Verses 4-6 through say, they multiply their sorrows who have contracted a marriage with another God. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my allotment and my cup. You are the one who secures my lot. The measuring lines, the boundary lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Surely an inheritance that is beautiful for me. It was, uh, it's uh, Jim Jordan actually who has helpfully explained this concept of contracting marriage with a foreign God. This verse, verse 4, has given commentators fits because the word here 
describes how uh, in ancient cultures a man would usually pay a sum of money to his fiancée that would be her own nest egg. Sort of like a, a life insurance policy for his bride-to-be in case anything ever happened to him, whatever she had financial means. She could do with, with it as she pleased. She could invest it. She could run her own business. She could just you know keep it and hang on to it for a rainy day. Uh, it, was her, it was his gift to her, separate from any bride price or dowry that he would have paid uh, her family. And that's the word that's uh, described here. And it seems to be in the context of entering into a marriage or an alliance with a with a foreign god, with another another god. It's it's a little bit unclear exactly uh, what is being described here, but I think this the the idea is pretty obvious. I think this refers to some sort of spiritual adultery where maybe there are Israelites marrying pagan women and entering into alliance with the pagan idols of these uh, foreign women. Or it could be that the Israelites, God's own bride, are committing spiritual adultery against the Lord by seeking the benefits offered by these pagan deities. Whatever the case may be, I think it's important to recognize that the, the echoes here of this language of multiplying sorrows. Does that sound familiar? Multiplying sorrows is a is an echo from Genesis 3 when the Lord tells Eve, He tells the woman, because of uh, her sin, that God will multiply her pain in childbearing. You see, the fall of man, the sin of Adam and Eve, was the original act of spiritual adultery. It was the original betrayal of God by trying to find something good apart from God. Something good beyond what He had provided at that time. And so this is what David is warning against. This is what David is asserting that he has refused to do. These verses show the opposite of that. They show the loyalty and the generosity of God's true King. David knew that God had given His people the promised land as a bridal gift. And that it was God who provided them with security in the land. David knew that it was God who had secured His throne. David knew that everything they had received from the Lord was a gift to be received with thanksgiving. And in that, David could find contentment. But more than that, it was God's gift. It was recognition of God's generosity, of His abundant gifts, that then allowed David to be generous. It allowed him to give good gifts to the people of God when he was enthroned as king. A righteous king, a just king, gives gifts to the people whenever he is enthroned. And this is the pattern, of course, ultimately that we see fulfilled in Christ. When Christ ascends to the heavenly throne, 
What does He give to His bride as, a, as an ascension gift? As a, as a wedding gift? A coronation gift? He gives the gift of gifts. He gives the Spirit. He pours out His Spirit on His church as a bridal gift for His people. When we recognize that God is the giver of every good gift, when we see that He is the one who has allotted to us our portion, when we see the Lord as our inheritance, as our cup, we can confess that whatever our lot in life may be, we can confess with David, surely the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Surely this is a beautiful inheritance. For me, because the Lord is our inheritance. And that knowledge, that understanding, that contentment then allows us in turn to show generosity to others, to God's people. G.K. Chesterton hit it on uh, hit the nail on the head as he usually does when he said, When it comes to life. The critical thing is whether you take things for granted or take them with gratitude. That is the path to contentment. It's to recognize God as the giver of gifts. To recognize that God is the One who has allotted to us our portion in life. That God indeed has given Himself to us. And in Him we can be content no matter the circumstances, no matter what we seem to lack. But this sort of contentment only comes through trusting God's provision. It only comes through heeding His instruction. This is not common sense that you can just pick up from uh, the, 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 the culture around you. This is not... Um, just uh, sort of, you know, things that everybody knows. We live in a consumeristic, materialistic culture where we have more stuff than any culture has probably ever had, yet we are less content than probably ever any culture has ever been. Because we have oftentimes forgotten God is the giver of gifts. He is the one who allots our portion. And in that we can be content. And so we need, we learn this contentment, we learn uh, this uh, attitude through God's instruction, through God's Word. It's by God's Word that we learn to live by faith and not by sight. And so David moves, transitions then naturally to thank God, to praise God for His instruction. In verse 7, he says, I shall bless Yahweh who has given me counsel. Even in the nights, my kidneys instruct me. First, let's clear up any possible confusion about what it means for your kidneys to instruct you at night. This does not mean uh, that you're laying in bed and or uh, otherwise unable to sleep and you regret eating that extra helping of spicy food for dinner. Uh, nor does this refer to getting a kidney stone and thinking, oh, I knew I should have been drinking more water. Okay, this is not what it means to have your kidney, kidneys instructing you at night. The kidneys 
and other visceral organs were seen as the seat of conscience uh, and desire, uh, sort of like the way we talk about the heart, right? We talk about uh, our heart much in the same way that uh, ancient people talked about the kidneys. There may be a connection between the fact that kidneys were uh, called reins. There might be something there. I need to look into that. Uh, but anyway, whatever the case may be, to be instructed by your kidneys at night is, I think, to have your mind, to have your conscience formed by the Word of God so that as you meditate on, the, on God's Word day and night, the Spirit of God can work through our conscience, can bring to mind the Word of God to instruct us, to convict us if needed, to, to help us to sort through the difficulties of life and reach uh, clarity in how it is that we ought to live. But we have to be meditating on God's Word in order for that to happen. Uh, there, you know, Jesus tells His, His apostles not to worry about what they're going to say beforehand when they're brought before uh, judges and when they're brought into the synagogues and, and, and persecuted for His sake because the Spirit will bring it to mind. And I had a seminary professor who said, now don't think you can just show up in the pulpit uh, and you know not prepare anything because the Spirit's going to bring it to mind. He said, you've got to give the Spirit something to work with. right? You've got to be filling your mind with the Word of God if the Spirit's going to have anything to bring to mind at those difficult times of trial. Verse 7, though, teaches us to praise God for His counsel, to bless God for His instruction. This is one of the reasons why after every Scripture lesson that's read, we say, this is the Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Because whether we like a particular passage of Scripture or not, whether or not this passage is your life verse or not, we must learn to thank God for His life-giving Word. All of it. Every word of it. Because only God's Word shows us the way of salvation. Only God's Word shows us the path of life and peace. Only God's Word can make sense of the world. Jesus Christ, of course, is the incarnate Word. He is the fullest manifestation of God's wisdom. He is the one who discloses the mystery of God and displays the glory of God to us. He is the one who makes the Father known. And as we come to know God, through His Son, the mind of Christ is formed in us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the path. He is the destination. He is our guide to everlasting joy in God's presence. This is David's hope, and this is our hope as well, that God has promised to bring us 
into His glorious presence. And that there is nothing that can prevent us from reaching our destination. The psalm ends with these incredible promises. I have set Yahweh before me continually. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Even my flesh shall dwell unafraid. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you give your covenant beloved to see destruction. You will make known to me the path of life. Fullness of joy is in your presence, and pleasures are in your right hand everlastingly. When we take refuge in the Mighty One, when we set the Lord before us continually, we can rejoice in God's promise that no trial, no suffering, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God or prevent us from entering into the fullness of His glory. Psalm 16 is not a psalm about escaping death. It's a psalm about passing through death to life in God's presence. Psalm 16 isn't a foolproof program for a life without troubles. It's a training course for contentment in the midst of life's troubles. At first glance, you might be inclined to think that Psalm 16 ends with the promise of pleasures that we won't get to enjoy until heaven. Most translations say, at your right hand are pleasures evermore. And that leads, may lead some people to say, well, a lot of good that does me now, right? Gotta wait until, you know, heaven. And that's, maybe that's why so many people, um, you know, say, forget this life. We just need to get, you know, get to heaven. That's where, that's where all the good stuff is. But that's, that's not at all the idea here. The last line is best translated, not at your right hand, our pleasures, but in your right hand, our pleasures, our pleasures evermore. It's true that we won't know the fullness of joy until we see God face to face. It's true that when we see Him, we will be made like Him. But that doesn't mean that God is holding out on us until then. That would contradict everything else that this psalm has already said. No, the promise that God has pleasures in His right hand evermore gives us every reason to believe that God has an abundance of gifts to give His people even if we are not yet immediately in His presence. Through His Word, through His sacrament, through the means of grace, through the fellowship of the church, through the million little ways that we don't even recognize in our lives, our gracious Father is pouring out His gifts upon us. He is giving us Himself. And every week at the Lord's table, every week as we gather in worship, Jesus shows us the path of life. Jesus imparts His life and His salvation to us afresh. 
every week as we gather around the table, the Lord gives us a foretaste of the glory that awaits us. The feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the fullness of joy in God's new creation. As Christ serves us, and as we serve one another in the supper, we are formed into a people of humility, contentment, thanksgiving, and hope. Psalm 16 is something of a rags-to-riches story. David starts this psalm with nothing, and he ends up with everything. One commentator put it this way, the refugee of verse 1 finds himself an heir, and his inheritance is beyond all imagining and all exploring. This is the biblical pattern. Those who humble themselves are exalted. The poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. Those who surrender everything to Christ find that they lack nothing. Those who have died with Christ and died to self are free to live the life of the new creation. May it be so for you and me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good gifts that You love to pour out upon us. There is indeed no good for us apart from You. Help us to receive these gifts, to find hope, to find contentment in, in Your gifts and in Your provision, and to be formed into a people of gratitude and generosity. We pray this in the name of Christ and for His sake. Amen.